great to uh, be with you here this morning. So grateful to hear from the singles ministry, the health and the excitement of our singles ministry for our campus students and those who are younger to look forward to. It's such an encouraging uh, thing. I'm going to go ahead and just jump right on in. It's one of the names of God we're going to be looking at here. Hasn't this been encouraging to look through the Bible and look at the many facets of God's name? Today we're going to be looking at Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. You know, it's also a secondary meaning. The root word for Jireh in the literal sense is to see. Now some would say that if Jireh is translated to see then why is it in the text, God will provide? Well, here's why. God has provision. And the Greek word pro is a prefix that means before. Right? So you put pro before uh, that word vision, uh, which means to see before, to see beforehand. Some scholars would even argue to define the word gyra, that it could be uh, translated to the Lord will see to it. And so as we read this story here, uh, we will find this name. And I want to make sure that, uh, you know, I preface this by saying if you were to give a quick skim read of this story and not dig a little deeper, you'd most likely walk away from it asking yourself, did I just read what I just think I read? You'd ask yourself, did God just say that? This doesn't make any sense. You know, let me acknowledge, there are times in the Bible when we read, we begin to read, and on the surface, it doesn't make sense. That is, of course, until you start to dig a little deeper. And that's what we hope to do here this morning. Amen? The story involves Abram, who later later would be renamed Abraham, and his wife, uh, wife, Sarai, later named Sarah. So, if I go in between names, hopefully that's not confusing, or if I stick to one of them, uh, that's why. But I want to give some context to this story here before we pick it up in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham, at the age of 75, God tells Abraham to leave his people, leave his homeland, and Abram obeys. He says, you know, I will make a great nation come from you. All the people will be blessed through you. In other words, He promised him that I'm going to bless the world through your descendants. He called them into something great for God. Now, Abram is 75 years old. I don't know about you, but I hope at the age of 75, I don't have a newborn. You know, parents, it was hard enough at the age of 20, age of 30, maybe even in our 40s, to have a newborn, but in our 70s? That takes a lot of faith. At the age of 86 now, he's 86, and God is blessing his livestock, his cattle, multiplying, all of that, except children. And his wife, who's about 10 years younger, she's in the 75, 76 age range, uh, than him, laments, and, and they're, they're just thinking they won't be able to have children. And so then God comes at a time where He affirms to Abraham, hey, I have a promise for you. that You will bear a son and an offspring too numerous to count. 
Abraham believes, but he takes matters into their own hands. Abraham believed that Sarah, you know, it didn't sit well with her, and rightly so. That she was well advanced in age and has not had children, which is a big deal in the Jewish culture at the time. And so she does what was considered culturally acceptable at the time, and she offers her maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham with the idea that she could conceive this son. And Abraham uh, then thinks this is the way that he's going to be blessed. This is how, through him, the descendants will come. The problem with this decision, though, it wasn't necessarily God's choice plan. And there's all kinds of family turmoil that results in, uh, in, in you know, some turmoil between Hagar and Sarah, and rightly so. But Sarah offered her maidservant. And she did so because she believes she's getting in the way of God's plan. But somehow she's the problem. You ever feel like that with God? You know, somehow I'm the problem. You, you know what God has said, but He didn't say how. And so that doesn't settle well with you. You, you want to be a little bit more in control. Maybe you're tempted to take things into your own hands. Your future, your children's future, your finances in control. Your timing, your way. What if God, though, did things on our timeline? Is it possible that if He were to do that, that those plans may not be our plans, what we think should happen, when it should happen, and how it should happen, would be things that benefit us? Maybe. You know, it seems like a bad idea to try to accomplish God's plans in our own way, in our own timing. Because God's plan comes complete with His methods, His timing. And yet we have a way of taking things into our own hands, don't we? Especially when we start to live by sight and not by faith. When things aren't making sense, we like to take control. We like to focus on the things that do make sense. Only because we're looking at them at a worldly point of view, rather than a spiritual point of view. And so bad decisions are made, and sometimes at the, end, uh, sometimes at the expense of others, and we make these spiritual detours. You ever made a spiritual detour? You know, maybe you're here this morning, perhaps the choices you're making in your life has got you on a spiritual detour. And lucky for us, you know, you know we're, we're just not that powerful to foil and spoil God and His plans. You know, we're not beyond reach to, to recalibrate, to, to recalculate and get us back on the right track. Amen? Amen. And at age 99, God calls to him again. And this time he's very specific and reaffirms his legacy blessing and says that this blessing is going to come from you through your wife, Sarah. And you're going to name him Isaac. And God specifies this promise that through Isaac, who's going to be born the following year, uh, will be the one. And Abraham obeys. And so at age 100, a year later, God fulfills His promise just as He said He would. 
and Sarah becomes pregnant, bears a son here for Abraham at his ripe young age of a hundred years old. And they name him Isaac. Now that we have some context, let's read here Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he said. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. And I will show you. Wait, wait, did I just read the passage right? Did I just hear God or some other voices? Why would God test Abram? God gave him this child. Keep in mind, he not only loved Isaac, he needed Isaac. God told Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and it rested on Isaac to carry that on. I mean, put yourself in Abraham's sandals for a second. (laughs) God's provision is not making sense right now. God's request seems, in fact, to be a contradiction to His promise. So why would He ask of the unthinkable of Him? Why would He allow tests to happen in our own lives? You know, a test from God is very different from temptation from Satan. A test from God is to prove what is real, what is true, what is genuine, what is authentic. It results in spiritual growth. Well, I I don't know. It sounds like He's tempting Him. No. Temptation only destroys and tears down faith while tests build up our faith. The testing of our convictions. Because convictions are meant to be tested. How else will we show that we are real and true and genuine and authentic in our love for God? Now, some of the greatest tests of our faith force us to look to God as the only hope we have. How do we respond when God gets our attention and He asks something hard or or confusing of you and I? You know, maybe we procrastinate. You know, we kind of wait a little bit. We delay. Because we're like, you know, if if, if God's serious about this, then, then He would say it again. So so I'm going to wait and see if He says it again. If it's important, He will. But the reality is, you know, a bunch of us, we we might not do the things that God wants us to do. And what He wants us to do is imitate Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith here. But what did his faith lead him to do? We'll read on here. See Abraham's response to this request in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Notice Abraham didn't do any of the things we just talked about. Procrastinate, delay, sit around and wait. He got up the next day. His faith led him 
to obedience. It was immediate. It was complete. He continued on this three-day journey, walking 50 miles in three days to worship God. You know, sometimes we don't want to make the spiritual investments that we need to. Churches, where? Wait, this activity or devo is how far? What's our excuse here? Abraham did what he needed to do. He obeyed the living God. Notice the verbs. Arose, went, that, re- that indicate immediate response. Notice also, he didn't try to bargain with God. There wasn't this interaction between him and God. You know, God, let's talk about this here for a second. Uh, what if I give you my best lamb? How about that? My best lamb. Okay, that's not good. Okay, how about the top two lambs of all my cattle? Man, I'll give you the top two. God's like, you know, this is not, you know, this is not the fantasy football league here we're talking about. Okay, we're not trying to make trades here. This is what I ask of you. He doesn't give us a debate. He didn't travel with some secret lamb ready to sacrifice at the moment when it came to it. So why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice the thing which he cherished the most? How could Abraham be so sure that God would come through? Did you catch and notice at the end of that verse he said, we will worship and we will come back. When God tests the heart, you know, He teaches the heart. And when He teaches a heart, He moves a person. He moves people into a new place in the relationship with Him through a process called surrender. And in that process of surrender, that's where where, uh, faith is built. The kind of faith that pleases God. And that's where Abraham was. The answer to our question of how did he, how did he know, how could he be so certain that they would both come back? Hebrews 11 tells us, in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, right? continued, numbered. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He has considered it lost. His son, the one in which would carry his lineage. It wasn't his only one, right? Ishmael came first. But God said, Isaac will be through who you will be blessed through. Abraham believed that all that if if it had to really come through with this, God would bring him back. Even though he's never seen God like that before. He's never seen a resurrection physically happen before. But maybe he has. Maybe he has seen God give life even to his wife in a in a place that was barren and quote unquote was dead. No life could come from it. But he saw God bring life. And maybe that's, that's what gave him that faith. And maybe you and I stand here before God, knowing in our lives, you've been around, you've been a Christian for some time, you've seen God make things come alive from things that you and I would consider dead. 
so he believes. On the flip side, had he not believed, then he would have joined the masses of people who would give up on God because of a difficult, unfair circumstance, many times walking away from experiencing a new manifestation, a new character of God in their lives that awaits them right around the corner. A new name of God in their lives. Jehovah, Jireh. And the lineage would not have continued, would not have happened. So in verse 6 we read, Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes my son? Abraham replied, The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamp for the burnt offering? That's a good question, right? (laughs) Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Abraham has journeyed. And the only question we have here recorded is, uh, where's the lamp? You know, something seems to be missing here. And yet Abraham seems to be so focused, so, so completely surrendered. Because he says, God will provide, my son. He was so focused. We read on verse 9. When he reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar and on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. They reached the place God had told them about. The altar is built. Isaac is bound on the altar. He reached out his hand. He takes the knife about to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord comes out from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on him. He takes God serious. And so God replies, Now I know. Now I know that you fear God. You know, God was wanting to know whether Abraham was more consumed with the blessing or the blesser. Isaac was the blessing. And God was the one doing the blessing, giving the blessing, the blesser. My question to us here this morning, who or what is your Isaac? And are you willing? Are you willing to give it up if you know it prevents God from saying to you, now I know. You know, Abraham shows by his actions that he's more concerned with the blesser than the blessing. Now I have experienced that I am number one in your life, Abraham. You and I, we've experienced this together. I know you fear me. I know I'm number one in your life. And God wants to experience that from each of one of us. He showed him you're number one. Because God does ask us 
Am I number one? Jesus puts it in this way. Luke 14, verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with Him, and He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciples. This is another one of those, this doesn't make sense kind of Scriptures. Did Jesus literally just say hate? Did He just contradict His message of love? Did He just contradict His commands about honoring or obeying your parents? Not at all. When you dig a little deeper, He's talking about a comparison between God and anyone, anything else, where God has no match. There's no match for God. That He is more important to express priority, not emotional hatred. You read hate, you're actually reading to, to love less. Anyone who loves their father, mother, son, their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, let your love for our fathers, mothers, and daughters, let them run deep. Communicate that. Share that with one another. It's what I took away from this past weekend as we celebrated the life of our sister, Debbie Littenwalter. And the love that is poured out into her children and through her marriage. And now the children sharing and speaking about her and the love she had for each one of them. So yes, love your fathers, your mothers, your brothers, your sisters, your children, and let it run deep. But our love for Jesus... Let it run deepest. One way of taking up our cross and loving is loving our comfort less. Loving our jobs less. Our kids' accomplishments less. Our own families less in comparison to God. You know, there's an incredible story shared at the family conference a few weeks ago about a mom and dad as faithful disciples with four children. And their oldest child, Connor, became a disciple at 14 years old. He was a star lacrosse player, a star soccer player at his high school. And because he's a disciple first, who happens to be a lacrosse player, who happens to be a soccer player, he started Bible talk at his school. Very fruitful one. And he's very engaged in the church through worship. And he does it with such great energy and enthusiasm. And 15 months ago, he was in a tragic pool accident where he is now paralyzed for life. It's been a painful year for the family, but you know, Jesus being Lord is alive in their household. The church leader said the family has only missed church when Connor is sick. Besides that, their parents never missed meetings with the body. Connor sees his parents' faith and it helps keep his faith during such a hard time. And last month, we heard about this 17-year-old from his wheelchair preaching a sermon on suffering. And he gave this quote. He said, Hardship strengthens us. Hardship often prepares ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Amen. 
This is a 17-year-old. What? This doesn't make sense. His response, it doesn't make sense. Or does it? Verse 13. Abraham looked up. And there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, uh, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities, of their cities, of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. You know, when we start to believe this nonsense starts to make sense. It's why the lives of disciples should not make sense to those who don't believe. If their life as a Christian makes sense to someone who's not, isn't there something really wrong with that picture? You know, I want to lift up my wife, Addie. You know, Addie uh, came from a family that highly valued education. Simply because her parents did everything that they could for their kids to provide the opportunities that her family did not have. And so when I met Addie, she was a senior at UCLA and she was, a, she was on a full ride scholarship while I just had a ride full of teens as I was serving in the teen ministry. It was a very generous scholarship. She had her undergrad covered and it would cover everything up to her PhD, should she choose to go. She was getting ready for graduate school and start her master's program. She was uh, doing some hours as a teacher in the classroom. And it was at the end of that summer that God would have us meet the vets in Miami at an international leadership conference in 2010. What was I doing there? A volunteer teen leader from LA at an international leadership conference yeah, I don't know. I think I heard that there was free food or something. <laughs> and there's an awesome story with that. I'll share some other time. But we began considering the full-time ministry. We began considering moving from a home that we've, we've only known. We met the East Region, fell in love, excited about the possibility. And here's where the rubber met the road. Addie had to communicate to the Bill Gates Foundation, which came, the scholarship came from, whether or not she would continue in her schooling after she had finished her master's. Otherwise, she'd forfeit her scholarship. You start doing the math there. Okay, how much, uh, how much is one year of grad school? Okay, now times that by four or, or maybe three if you finish early. Okay, that, wow. And all of that gets covered through this scholarship. Yeah, absolutely. All of that and more. And on top of that, she had about six more months. All she needed was six more months after a few years of schooling. She just needed six more months to obtain her teaching credential, which had to be done in the classroom. She needed to fulfill a certain amount of hours 
to be done in the classroom. And this was October time when we were contemplating this. And we thought, man, is there any way we could, uh, you know, come and serve the youth family like in, like in June? Is that, Derek, is that possible? Yeah, is that possible? But you know, we can't guarantee that. The need is now. We said, okay, we understand. So we had to count the cost. And you know, becoming a disciple, it's not the one and last time we count the cost, right? <laughs> Scholarship, teacher credential, by faith her heart was to trust more in the blesser than in the blessing. Family and friends started, started talking. What are you doing? That doesn't make sense. Mom and dad, all they worked for her oldest sister setting the bar high. She's on her way to get her PhD, which she has already. She's a high school principal. She's like, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. Or does it? We considered both things. Good is dead. Good is lost. But we found out after coming here and uh, that someone wanted to vouch for Addie. Someone picked up this, this, you know, the student and, and what she was doing and why. And as long as she could finish this one project and come back to LA to take a test and pass this test, she would get her teaching credential, which would be good at any state, and would go with her wherever she would go. And on top of that, God beforehand protected Addie. Because a few months after we had moved here, the school that she was a part of was under fire because of some foul play with some unethical superintendents. And so the school had to be shut down. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But the greatest blessing of all is seeing how God has blessed her faith. Yes. And the legacy of teens and dozens and dozens of teens have been impacted right. serving here in the youth and family ministry. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Or does it? And Abraham learned this. And he learned this new and, and permanent uh, relationship or name of God that He indeed will provide. He learned in a very personal way. That in a personal way, he, not, he wants to meet us where we're at and provide. Whether it be a new dream, a new calling, a strength in the midst of sickness and financial hardship when disaster strikes, the Lord will provide. And yet, as we bring this in for a landing, I can't help but to share what God provides that no one or nothing in this world could ever provide for you and I. Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch the two things that only God, that only Jesus can offer? Forgiveness of sin and eternal life. You see, the story of Abraham and Isaac, it's really a story of you and I. Where you and I should be placed on that altar. 
But He found a substitute atonement in our place. What can make me white as snow? Man, what can make me whole again? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. God, who can wipe away every tear and sickness and weeping and overcome death? God. You've ever felt like you've gone too far? You ever felt like the bad choices that have resulted in pain and regret in your life, they're just far beyond healing. They're just far beyond repair. God would want you to know that He provides. What medicine can't fix, what the stock market can't predict, what your retirement plan can't provide, what big businesses and political leaders of this world can't promise, God can. Jehovah Jireh absolutely can. And He wants to say to each one of us, each one of us who obey, each one of us who trust in His provisions, who are more consumed with the blesser than the blessing, now, now I know that you fear me. Amen, church.